0: welcome to two guys Tech's tech chat podcast i am your host rich tesla and i am joined by my ever so dapper i had to look that one up co-host brandon casner brandon how are you doing i'm doing well how about yourself i can't complain it's been wicked busy but then again that's good i mean yeah busy busy, busy is better than being bored i suppose what, what did we put out recently but whoa this is this is the seven thousand dollar pc right Yes, depending on when you're watching this, we just released our the video about that Cooler Master Cooling X uh, all entirely liquid cooled computer, which was honestly, from an engineering and design standpoint, my favorite thing ever. Yeah, like the sides it was are liquid cooled. It, it's a
1: giant. It looks like a giant radiator. Which it is. Depending yeah. on what you're running, it might. Be a giant radiator. Now that I think about it, right. I mean,
0: that's that's <laughs> the whole thing. Like the sides of it are milled aluminum, and they have water cooling channels cut into them. Jeez. So it pumps the liquid through the sides and then through a dedicated radiator back. Just bananas. Like uh, you know, it's got a seventy nine fifty X three D CPU in it, a forty eighty GPU. All of it's water cooled. Super cool. It just has low low price of seven grand. Really, seven grand. Like. Um, I, I can't I can't justify it. I yeah. I think that on a personal level, like I would use that thing all day long. I'd play games on it, but I can't. I cu- I could never. Like, it makes my
1: wallet cry. Like, just the thought. <laughs> just the thought makes my. There's, wallet not cry. A, there's not enough Bitcoin to mine anymore to to get your money back on. No, it. no.
0: <laughs> um, and it, you know, it's it's small. It's not this big thing, but it weighs a ton because it's mostly metal and water, right? Yeah. Um, it's it's neat. It's If you haven't seen the video, go check it out because it's it's pretty cool. But how about you? What have you been up to?
1: Uh, I've been diving in the world of Red Hat, which uh, is a bad word a little bit are now. You, are you supposed to say that? Uh, like, we're going to have a bunch of, like, angry... Maybe. Messages. Well, we'll have to see who Koo shows in there. But uh, <laughs> I've been diving in Red Hat and uh, went to one of their conferences with uh, the OpenShift. Nice. And actually, you can pick up VMs from vSphere hmm. and bring them into OpenShift as full container VMs, which then the Red Hat and guys and i sat there and kind of was like well that kind of defeats the purpose of a container but here we are
0: <laughs> is, is that literally like going so every time we talk about containers we talk about virtualization we're totally off topic here but like you know virtualization was the first first level right that's the yep. first level of inception well, and then containers bare metal
1: and yeah. then we were like that's costing a lot of money let's put everything on one server and they got virtualization and they're like okay but now i want to like only need the things i need which is what containers were for her right, application and now they're like Well, everything runs so well in containers. Let's just shove everything back into containers.
0: (laughs) (laughs) What if I told you we would now run the entire VM as yeah. a container,
1: puts on the Morpheus glasses and just <laughs> begins. Like
0: uh, I, I feel like it's more like a uh, um, Inception moment. Fair, okay, Where you go four levels deep, and now we have virtualized everything. Around you use a virtual machine, and your clock cycles do slow down each, each level you go. Right, <laughs> that's fact. That's that's perfect, right? So you know, every minute takes five minutes, takes an hour, yeah. it takes a day, whatever. It is. Uh, okay, so. Um, what are we going to talk about this month? What's what's on the docket? For
1: yeah, today? so this is actually an idea from uh, our Discord channel. They wanted to talk about how to move their home lab uh, from, let's say, a lab state okay. uh, to something that is production um, or you know a business state. Um, I'm going to start with a disclaimer: don't do this. <laughs> it's it's a fun exercise. It's fun to try oh. to like get get your site to be as redundant as possible, but. Having to deal with customers on your own stuff is a Herculean challenge that you may not want to deal with. And I'm not even worried about the technical stuff. I'm just dealing with people who rely on your services could be a problem. What Brandon is saying is that
0: (laughs) if you love what you're doing... Doing it for a living destroys what you love,
1: which is funny because <laughs> I do home lab stuff for my living, but I make sure that there's a, a clean wall between 100 who yeah. who I'm responsible to for what. Yeah, that, so <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah that's, that's a good point. But, but nonetheless, we are here
0: to talk about how one could take their lab, their their little miniature infrastructure, and turn it into a production yeah infrastructure so where would you start then let's get the ball rolling where where would we go from the beginning
1: um so like we're going to talk a little bit about like what what production means just to break it down to some categories okay uh and then we'll, we'll get started at the bottom um which by the bottom meaning power you can't can't have any cpus can't have any computers unless mm-hmm. you got power um but w- what we decided that production meant was You had a way to automatically patch things okay you had a way to have redundancy of services should one thing go down and another way to ensure reliability meaning if your service is not there it's somewhere else it's somewhere around the world you can figure it out you can still deliver your thing even if one node goes down okay Um, but let's start at power so we figured we start with UPS's and before you even look at buying an UPS you should decide if you have two separate circuits because you want as redundant redundantly um, create. You want to create as much redundancy as possible. When uh, we look at data centers, especially around Hill, here in Hillsboro, they usually have three phase, meaning three separate circuits from preferably different energy providers. Though <laughs> sure. your mileage may vary on that one. Right. Um, and the other thing that they always have is an A. They have A, B, and sometimes A, B, C circuits. Sure. Um, to make sure that you can plug into one. If one circuit goes down, it's not a big deal. And that takes a lot, but in terms of UPSs, like you have, um, you just have one sitting in the bottom, right?
0: (laughs) Right. So, yeah, I mean, when you are small, like like Brand and I are, um, you know, UPSs are expensive. They are. They are super critical. Even used. Yeah. Even used. Uh, uh, You know, a lot of times, you know, people think that I bought this UPS and it's great. And depending on the age of that UPS, depending on the type of batteries, because it used to be everything was sealed lead acid. Things have moved on to lithium ion, which is better because those batteries. Are more resilient yeah whereas the sealed that acid batteries typically in in a uh, production environment if you burn your batteries down to zero and they're sealed that acid they're pretty much blown like they'll yeah. still hold charge and they'll still work but they won't be able to hold the but same amount of yeah, it's like 50 yeah, percent it's, it's a lot it's, it's, it's not just a little bit uh... yeah so here um, in the two guys tech data center downstairs <laughs> in the garage here you know there's a single 20 amp circuit that feeds it right yeah so um, while that's not truly redundant in the sense of like we have two sources of power or a generator and line voltage right i have the main power that's coming in and if that fails then i have roughly about 45 minutes of backup power in my 2200 rm that i've got downstairs that's not bad no how about you
1: i mean you've got UPS 2 right yeah i have a UPS 2 i think it's a slightly slightly smaller model um i only have a or sorry, I have a 20-amp circuit as well. Okay. I was trying to remember all my plug stuff from when I used to do the, the build-outs. Mm-hmm. Um, but it And it has, I would say, maybe 10, 10 minutes of runtime. Okay. Um, it's pretty small. And it does what I need it to do, which is not have everything magically crash at once. Right. Um, Though I, I have some other stuff in terms of software that we'll get into later to maybe kind of mitigate that even if it goes down. Because, mm-hmm. you know, if it's 2 a.m. and the batteries run out, the batteries are going to run out unless i wake up so
0: <laughs> yeah speaking of that that's that's a good point um in a a production built or purpose built thing where you have battery systems that are running and you you say you don't have a generator because yeah, last company i worked for we put in a massive battery backup system that could run that environment for an hour i mean if it was fully populated but they skimped on buying a generator mm. so that meant that when those batteries are exhausted it was going down um, in that case there's systems and software it depends on on basically depends on who your ups that you're using is made by but there's like the battery uh power shoot software yeah power shoot then that's apc's one there's also (laughs) nut which is an open source Uh, um you know daemon that will run and and connect to your ups's and it will command things to shut down gracefully Mm. which is super super important obviously because like brandon said downstairs i've got two hosts uh actually technically i have three hosts but um, you know, I've got my storage system and my two, two nodes in my cluster. I want those machines to shut down gracefully and don't have
1: the rug pull on them because rug pulling destroys data, right? And especially in uh, Linux. Linux really hates it when you pull its disk out.
0: Yeah, Windows
1: true. is a little better at it, but if you you pull a disk out on a Linux system, it, it's a, it's a reboot at least. Yeah, if not a full file system check, okay. and you will know when your when your uh, when your storage goes offline, even for a moment, with Linux machines because it's like
0: ah, <laughs> oh, kernel panic. Uh,
1: um, but yeah, but the other thing that's important about the UPS is it's actually conditioning your power. It is um, where we are, we have. Pretty, I'd say, pretty clean power. Every now and then, I'll I'll get a, a note from my UPS that it was out of the voltage spec or something. Right. Yeah, There'll be but an interruption or a dirty line voltage, right? Yeah, but both both of us have worked at a um, companies that we in places that didn't have good power, right? Uh, like the and east, just the East Coast in, in the East Coast, yeah. Like that we well, worked from is an East
0: Coast, it's like you—you you guys call that electricity because like who's <laughs> making that? It's a There's just a bunch of
1: hands. Why is it under 120 volts? Yeah, why is <laughs> it, why is it moving like it vacillates well, so dramatically? Right. And so to to put a put a story behind it here, um, they were doing UPS maintenance, and part of UPS maintenance is you have to pull the batteries out, right? And this puts it into maintenance mode, which means you're running on full line power. Mm-hmm. Um, During that full-line power maintenance mode, a brownout happened, and this was back in, like, 2006 was when my boss was telling me about it, and it fried all the switches there. I think they lost half of them in total, completely gone. Uh, All because bad power came in. It wasn't even a, like, you just watched the lights flicker, and it just killed the Cisco switches. Yeah. Uh, So, yeah, UPS will save your butt. (laughs) There's a reason they have insurance things on them for, like, 250 (laughs) k
0: Yeah, that's kind of, it's, it's a hard thing to, to tell people who, you know, let's say you have a television at home, or you've got some really nice, or, or your gaming PC, like my, anybody's computer, mm-hmm. even if you don't think that you need something to protect that asset from power, like in a computer, in the world of computers, uh, essentially the dirty voltage comes in, and the power supply's job is to take that nasty, uneven uh you know, vacillating current and turn it into this beautiful, you know, silky smooth direct current. that A sine wave the whole way through. And that means that the UPS in a computer is like the first thing that gets its butt kicked all of the time. Brownouts, blackouts, dirty power, like bad changes in in frequency. Um, And so if you just put a UPS ahead of that, it cleans everything. You don't need one that's going to last you fifteen, twenty minutes. You just need something that's going to keep that power in, and that will keep all those things. That goes for your televisions. That goes for it goes for everything. Basically, if it takes in alternating current, you should probably and it's expensive. You probably want to put a UPS ahead of it.
1: Yeah, at, at a minimum, do yourself a favor and put a search protector on it. Yeah, just oh, yeah. to you know co- cover your butt there. But like, UPS is definitely the way to go for anything you care about. Right. Truly, right? Uh, for sure. Sweet. So. So moving on, on the, on the power perspective. So
0: step one, if you were going to do this and, and move your lab or your small uh, system into a production environment, you need to make sure that your power is solid. That's, that's,
1: is, we're, we're building a house here, people, <laughs> yeah. and that's the foundation. <laughs> and hi, this is why we, we say like, maybe don't do this at your home lab, do it in a colo. Because if your, p- your colo doesn't have redundant power by UPS, find a different colo. <laughs> yeah, right. Don't be there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. bad things are gonna happen and you don't wanna be part of that. Yeah. Imagine
0: um, going to a colour and like, yeah, we, <laughs> we just give you an extension cord and you just plug it in wherever, like, Yeah, right? Like, <laughs> is this, this a colour or is this someone else's garage?
1: Yeah. Right. Okay, so power out of the way. Yeah, so we've covered power. I guess can you really have anything about the internet now? Do you wanna start a router or do you wanna you wanna talk storage? We can uh, no,
0: way. we should okay, so let's let's talk about connectivity then. Okay. So we're talking about outside in c- connectivity first, right? Yeah, so we're gonna talk WAN. Okay, so obviously if you are serving public services over the internet, one would make sure that their internet is reliable. It, businesses, so at home here, like even though we run all the two guys tech stuff, it's just residential internet. That's what we're paying for. You nope. Know, two gigabit residential internet. Um, there's no SLA like to, lo- Yeah, SLA. They want it to be up, but like yeah <laughs> it's it's best effort. So if it yeah. goes if, if my internet goes offline right now, um, I can call up Ziply, that's my local ISP, and be like, hey, no internet. They're going to be like, yeah, we're working on it. We'll let All you right. know when it's done. <laughs> and that's the only commitment that they have is just to just to say, it's okay,
1: we got this. Um, I had an outage and they told me tomorrow. That, I had to wait for the dude to come. And I was like, this, this is rough.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm, my buddy down the street who's also on Ziply, uh, they had to do a... a re of his connection mm-hmm. at the at the box and they just called him on the phone and said okay we're going to come over and we're going to interrupt it the dude works from home yeah <laughs> i was like it's only going to be 15 minutes i'm like i work from home um so but they can do that because yeah. that's there's no guarantee there's no commitment to you uh, commitments come with money service total agreements come with an additional cost and uh other features like like static addresses and things that you don't get on a residential service so if you are going to serve something on the regular, if you're going to build up a web service or you're some sort of like whatever that's going to be using internet connectivity, uh, at a minimum, you need business grade internet, right? So you get that service level agreement and commitment from the ISPs. You will be better off with getting multiple connections in from multiple isps yeah. like here you what you'd have to use comcast which would be a nightmare Eesh. and um <laughs> and something like Ziply or something like that and then use something that, that we typically call like an WAN or a software defined wan uh system to allow you to utilize both of those connections um to 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 their strengths so if one is slower the other one you'd want to minimize usage to that and use the one that's better but obviously fluidly move the data if you lost one connection Okay.
1: Yeah, and I mean, if if you're looking at like PFSense or something, PFSense can do this as well. Not as fluidly as you talked about, sure. but like if you want to say primary Ziply, secondary uh, Comcast, mm. the minute it sees Ziply's down for 10 seconds, it'll flip over to Comcast and right. send everything that way. Um, yeah. But all that's really important because you don't want any of your services to not be accessible by your said customers. Yeah. Sure. Um, so how do we do HA inside of a router in general? I mean, we can talk about, you want to talk great. about PFSense as our common version or do you want to go more S D WAN stuff?
0: I would no, I think we should stay because I want to stay more realistic because um I would think that most people are going to have a single connection because that because of restrictions, right? Like yeah. I'm hosting data to Brandon and John and we have bidirectional Ipsec tunnels. We move data and do all these things. And I don't even though I I consider that to be a an acceptable level of risk. Risk is always the key here. <laughs> um but I am less concerned about the ISP's hardware going down because they're not using used gear off eBay. <laughs> you hope you hope they're not using used gear off I eBay. Mean... <laughs> could be, could be. Um, so you have you have an expectation in general that because they're selling you a service that they're you know they're using better gear, and so I look at it more of like let's say we have a single connection in that's where we start talking about high availability with um, with, with HA with either Sense or
1: another firewall router combo. Yeah and it's unfortunate though that the way HA works inside of pfSense you actually have to have a static IP. Cuz you need cuz you, you need 3 of them is yeah. the is the catch all. Uh, when you right now you probably have a DHCP address on your WAN. Mm-hmm. You have a second DHCP address. Typically, yeah. But that's all you have. Then you too. don't get any other ones uh, for however they delineate it to your um O-N-T. Yeah. Uh, Those are the only two I've tried many times. I'll only get get two at best. So uh, if you want to do something, you'll have to set up HA, which relies on the CART protocol, which is the Common Address Redundancy Protocol. And what essentially that is, is you take your first PFSense box, and you take a second PFSense box, and you hook a cable between them. And that's all the synchronization that's happening between whichever one's the primary, whichever one's the uh, failover. And then on your WAN, you have three IPs that are your 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 vip which is where everything's going to mm-hmm. and then your second address and your sorry, your primary address and your, and your secondary address but then every one of your subnets as well will have three ips oh to really do the same thing. Yeah. i think i believe that's how it works just on the okay. on the internal side because you have to have you say your gateway is one you have yeah, like a that gateway 2 and a gateway 3
0: where, unless you're a, routing like yeah. if you had layer 3 routing inside you'd only need a, you'd need three for inside but cuz you'd have a single routing endpoint. Yeah. If you route on the stick like Brand and I are, which means that everything funnels into the, the firewall and it does the, the routing between subnets, then absolutely. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, that's interesting. And as a side note, we're talking about PFSense because we use PFSense. We're big fans of PFSense. Um, and the same thing would work for OpenSense or a lot of other firewalls. Uh, professionally, I'm using Palo Alto Network's firewalls and they essentially require the same thing. Really? However, the thing that I love about that gear, and I'm not going to gush too much here, the pan gear, when it synchronizes, it's not just a heartbeat to say, are you alive? Mm-hmm. It synchronizes table states. Yeah. It's we'll, all cart. So, okay. So that happened. Yeah. I didn't cart, that.
1: That's why you have to have that like direct connect yeah, connection. Yeah. I thought that was it, just to make sure that it No, I'd say like every time you change something on the primary firewall, it's going to sync it. That's, but not just sync. Like, uh, like, does it also
0: move active states though?
1: I'd have to check that. I don't remember because that's uh, the
0: thing about the, the the pan. If you lose one firewall, yeah, uh, because they're synchronizing the states, which means that every natted interface that's going out, it uh, knows where so it's it knows going. The
1: state table, okay. yeah, it's
0: got the entire state table, mm. so it can just be like, oh, I'm gone. Doesn't matter. I already know that you're already talking to Google, and this is the you know this yeah, is your state. This is the connection. So that and that seeing that now that again, if you've got money and you're going, if you're going production, uh, I would recommend um, and please. By all means tell me in the comments that I'm wrong. I would recommend looking at, at
1: higher end gear. Yeah. Or we're, we're guessing you're in the home lab, so you're probably using PF Sense. Right. Go buy some gear from Net NetGate if you want to stick with PF Sense. Have have them sure. support you as well. Yeah, that's, that's um, a good point. Because you know, I think I think I run Palo Alto's at my current job. I've run Checkpoint at my last job. Mm-hmm. They're all incredibly expensive, but boy are they worth it. Right. Uh, in terms of like redundancy and uptime and then there's all sorts of security stuff that Rich can go into and tell you about how he's inspecting every packet down to the binary everything uh, yeah, yeah that, <laughs> as that, that, it goes in and out in real time so right. on, on a in a
0: services uh, system where you are serving out to the public you know that sort of deep packet inspection stuff is beneficial you'd usually put like a WAF or a or your web application firewall something like that to break the, the common BS that happens but um, the deep The deep inspection stuff or the SSL decrypt and re encrypt stuff, that's more on a firewall where you've got people in your organization that are out ingressing, egressing out of that firewall Mm -hmm. so you can make sure they're not downloading junk.
1: Um, bad job, right. User, End users would never download jump. End users? Click on links. Of course not.
0: No. I mean, <laughs> if, if I know anything from my years of working in, in the enterprise, it is that the end users are the most safe and reliable users we have. The <laughs> IT people are, are, are nowhere in comparison to like, gosh, uh, that's for sure. Um, all right, moving on. So the TLDR that is, you know, on on the edge, make sure that you have redundancy. I think that you're going to see re- recurring. Redundancy, redundancy, redundancy. Yeah, exactly. Like, <laughs> does it, is it a thing? Is it redundant? Those are the, like, this is a really simple, like, a, yeah. a flow chart. Like, How much do you care? Do yes. you care? Redundancy. Right, exactly. <laughs> so, you know, making sure you have redundant firewalls. If you can, redundant ISPs and some sort of way to automatically switch between them. Those sort of super beneficial things, obviously. Um, what's next?
1: I think next we got to talk about once you're once you're past uh, layer three. Let's talk about layer two and switching. Okay, um, this one's actually not too much to talk about except uh, redundancy. Make sure you have at least two switches, preferably more. Um, we can there's there's kind of two thoughts uh, in terms of data center design. Uh, there's what's called leaf and spine, where every every leaf or every rack has a pair of TORs mm-hmm. that connect back to a giant uh screaming core that's yeah, you've doing got an all aggregation, that stuff yeah, your um, core. or you can do what's the other one do you, do you called just home runs because like yeah. you have one where you have like these they're like they're called frames and you basically slot in 48 port right. sections and then you home run everything to bed giant yeah. frame yeah that's that's
0: a little bit more a lot of that really comes down to how your your data center is built right yeah. like everywhere that i've i've kind of worked these days leaf and spine the the, the tor top of rack system is, is usually the the simplest thing because then you just have a pair of 40 gigs or 25 gig or 100 gig connections out and so you have redundant paths to your core from the top of rack switches yeah. and you have redundant top of rack switches and they have redundant connections to the hosts that are running within right so again redundancy it's a, it's a thing what is redundancy it's what's for dinner
1: well uh, like even with the frames i hook up like, I hook up a server with four that uh, has four, four SFPs on it. Mm-hmm. Two of them go to one frame, and two of them go right. to my other frame. Yeah, And that's, you know, same idea, just running run in longer, longer homes of cable, right? Yeah.
0: And your connections up uh, are purely going to depend on what you're connecting to. Like, in VMware, for example, the ESXi, you don't typically lag those ports. They are just direct connections up with their own, um, and they just
1: round-robin between them. I've never had a good experience trying to lag them. And we'll no, be honest, I, I I I've tried it a few times. There's allegedly support. Every single time, it's just hook it up. Yeah, to the switch and let let ESXI decide what to connect on. Um, but not all things will be like that. If you hook up, you know, Linux servers or, or whatnot, or other network gear, right? Yeah, you'll want, other you'll network gear will want to lag, and lag. Stuff. right? Especially back to your core where you have all of the right. uh, ingress and egress coming out. So switching, just to recap, um, if you're going to do this,
0: and you've got to run, you need a redundant pair of switches, mm-hmm. right? But in, we, I recommend, and it sounds like Brandon recommends, have them in the top of rack. They need to, if, if you're going to build out a core aggregation where you've got a, a core network that's super fast, that's where you'd bring in all your other services, like your ISP connection or your your, excuse me, your firewall and your like gateway edge network connections would come into that core. That would also be technically where you'd probably do your routing, your layer three routing would be in the course, which is, they'd be built for that,
1: right? Yeah. And like it, especially at the home lab, you're going to have to like understand that you can't do this router on a stick. Or maybe you do, and your you micro-segmenting.
0: Yeah, you just have to, have to have a wicked powerful firewall. Because yeah. That and actually, let's 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 stop and talk about that. So, conceptually speaking, like Brian and I are talking about. Well, router on the stick. We have a firewall, everything VLANs into that firewall, and it's the thing that handles moving packets between the VLANs and off the internet. Why is that beneficial? Because we can apply filters and firewall rules to those interfaces inside of there so that VLAN A can or can't talk to VLAN B, or hosts can talk to each other, but not the entire subnet. And it becomes a way for you to basically play traffic cop um, in that device. Mm-hmm. You don't typically do that sort of thing in layer three routing on your core switches, because while the switch can have access control ACLs to to prevent and allow certain communications from happening between VLANs, it is very taxing to the compute inside those switches. Yeah. They're not designed for it. a layer three switch is designed to switch packets between VLANs and, and route those packets between VLANs. And that's it.
1: Do you think that's changing more as, as the world focuses on security? Because like when you have a layer three, if I'm, if I'm on VLAN, you know, 10 and I want to get to VLAN 20, 30, 40, whatever, if you haven't put a firewall rule in there, I can run all I want around there. You know, I, I think that it's
0: really going to come down to what your business requirements are for your organization. Um, if this is a business and enterprise and you are using VLANs more as a means of keeping down the broadcast noise between yeah. subnets, if you have a multi, multi-site campus where you've got multiple buildings and inside those buildings you have like different groups and you've, you've, you've deployed, logically you deploy VLANs to either a building or a floor or a section of a building just to keep the, the noise floor down, right? Yeah. Um, you wouldn't really worry about uh, doing packet filtering between those VLANs because it's considered the corporate network. Now, microsegmentation and you know breaking down layers from uh, you know you know the zero layer and down, mm-hmm. um, really, there's so many different ways to do it these days. Most people are trying to look at it from the firewall level and the devices themselves. That's, zero networks is a good example of that where they they are commanding the firewalls of the machines. And those are the things that are actually doing the blocking, and you control those interfaces through that mechanism. Okay. Um, but, yeah, I, I don't think that um, even today the, the modern Layer 3 switches out there, even the big ones like the Nexus and whatnot from Cisco, uh, my understanding is that they can do it and they can tolerate it, but at a certain level it gets to the point where the amount of extra processing it takes to, to inspect every single packet yeah, slows things down to a point where it ends up, uh, like, that's I've heard true. of, I've, uh, this has been, what, five, six years since I heard this, but, like, I last company, the actually brand I worked at, they used a Nexus uh, 9K to be their, their router between the data center and the rest of the organization, and they were doing ACLs on that firewall. And they found out that there was a hard limit of the amount of ACLs you could put in. When it happened, the, the ASIC and the, the, the router would crash, and the yeah. organization would go offline. Um, which was bad because it was the thing between the data center and the network, <laughs> and they needed an actual firewall there. Yeah. And so, they learned their lesson the hard way there. Well,
1: yeah, and more things to think about. I mean, as this is like a changing landscape too, where mm-hmm. you know today we're, we're saying firewalls in between, tomorrow be router on a stick, and next week it can be on your direct hypervisor firewall. So, sure. yeah, and I, I I know that there's more novel ways
0: to handle this stuff these days, which I haven't had a chance to play with using VXLAN to essentially VLAN every port. And have VXLAN be the the mechanism for tunneling those the communications back. Wow! And and that's that's really kind of considered like the the golden way to do it, where you don't actually configure switches for VLANs anymore. You just say that this port is going to be on this interface, and VXLAN will handle getting that stuff tunneled through. So the data is all just aggregated; it's a big mess, but it's hmm. all tunneled. That's again, that's we're talking. Um, that's the like, kind of the more b- yeah big data center stuff, so. right? And it's and that's that's the way because that, that's all then software defined.
1: Yeah. And uh, you can just it's, do it that way. It's so funny how I, when I took my CompTIA, they were like, VLANs are the heart of every organization. You have to cut things up. And now everyone's just like, make it all a trunk port. I don't care what it does. It'll fucking it'll figure itself out. Right. Like, <laughs> Yeah, that's for sure. So um, pivot back there. But okay. So a little we, bit off topic we, there. We, but <laughs> I think you killed switches. Sorry, guys. We kind of killed the switches there. But that's well, okay. Well, we'll move away from networking now. Um, so now that we're we're fully connected, we probably need a place to start storing our workloads and make sure we're. All, so let's roll into like storage and how you need because you and I, while we have very powerful storage systems uh, using both of our TrueNAS boxes, they aren't at this point. I would say production ready. Agree. Yeah. Um, and a lot of that comes with the fact that it's just a node, and that's something you got to think about when you're doing storage is that you'll need to have some sort of multi-node systems. Have you worked with any outside of? Uh, you know, like a Truenas. We had the M50 in house. We did. That that was in-house. pretty good. Yeah, that was awesome. Um, yeah. and it had like full HOU. You ripped out a motherboard, it would just fail over and we're... be there. Right. No interruptions. Mm-hmm. Um, I've played with some stuff with Ceph's and Gluster on you know the side testing things out. Okay. Um, what what have you done? Well,
0: I think that you know outside of the Truenas, the stuff um that we we played when we when we were able to evaluate one of those M50s. Um, awesome gear, by the way. Uh. In in most cases, on a single uh, storage inter- uh, like a storage network where you've got a SAN or a multifunction NAS slash SAN device, there'll be multiple controllers in it, redundant controllers in it, and those are more purpose built so that unlike maybe like the TrueNAS offering that has that's a full computer there's two full computers right yeah. TrueNAS, and they're, <laughs> they're talking through a back plane and they're synchronizing everything so that when one disappears one can take over uh a lot of the stuff you'll find is is more purpose-built where it's just like uh we're doing the same thing but we're doing it on on purpose-built hardware and those nodes or shouldn't call them nodes, but the actual controllers themselves are just you know you can pull those out yeah but that's not that's not redundant in the sense of like using Ceph's or Gluster or something like that, where you're actually scaling out. Actually, that's a good point. We're talking about when I I talk about like a a SAN that has two controllers in it and maybe multiple shelves that are attached to it via um, SAS, right? Mm-hmm. Those typically they call that scaling up, where you're just stacking on top of something. You're more. You're scaling up your storage, and then if you were looking at like distributing your file system by scaling out to multiple independent devices that's when you get into Gluster and Ceph's and all that kind of stuff where you're using independent systems but they're synchronizing their their data and they're okay. equally available right yeah. you agree with that
1: Yeah and it's kind of like the difference between like redundancy and then having like n minus 1 redundancy where right. like you can lose a node in Ceph's and life is still okay whereas if you lose one of the nodes in TrueNAS on the M50 it's okay but you're no longer in that redundant state
0: right. you need to get you need to get that fixed as quick as possible right so yeah i again I mean, we're, we're talking about redundancy
1: as, as the key here
0: yeah know? right like, <laughs> like you your RAID arrays that you have or your virtual RAID arrays or your what your however your your storage system is handling redundancy you're you're done on the disk level mm-hmm. power supply level typically you have multiple power supplies because Depending on the amount of disks, you might have
1: four power supplies, and they might be 20 amp connections each. But Yeah, some of those NetApps are huge, and they have, like, four four power supplies with four different controllers in them, so yeah. you could wire up all the IOPS for that. Um, but we had, well, the one we uh, played with at our last place was uh, Compellent, right? Wasn't right. It, it was a Dell Compellent one. It only had two controllers, but it was enough redundancy that you could update a controller. Mm-hmm. And it would, you know, fail over, and then you'd update the other one and fail back. And everything went well. And that's really critical to keeping your uptime. Because, like, right now when when Rich and I go to update our TrueNAS, it's shut down all the VMs. And, you know, we could run our VMs elsewhere, but we choose to do it over iSCSI. Mm -hmm. Um, It's shut down all our VMs. It's wait for TrueNAS to come up for, like, a 10-minute update usually. Sure. And then it's power everything back on. Right. And while that is great for a lab... You can't afford that. Yeah, right? you're, you afford your that SLA gun. for your customers may be a little higher than that. Uh, it right. might be upset if you know at midnight their thing goes down for uh, ten minutes. Plexa
0: as a service, all of a sudden people <laughs> can't get their movies right. Um, yeah, that's exactly that's uh, it. Uh, that also again speaks to what is what is your use case for this gear? What is the service or services that you're providing? And what have you committed to? Yeah. Do you have a maintenance window where there's an expe- expected time? Do you have a way to f- fail over? typically everybody these days who's serving anything has a way to keep their data or the storage redundant Mm -hmm. so you should do that too in that case
1: yeah and it's also fair to like think about also for like the processing of this stuff is if when you're setting all this stuff up if you talk to your customers and you go hey saturdays at 12 to 4 a.m that's the global maintenance window Mm -hmm. weird things can happen then right you just accept that, and that's something you can do as well. But there's also you got to have a, a process to the redundancy so that you don't have unexpected outages <laughs> when they're not needed. And communicate.
0: Oh unfortunately. yeah. that's really the way to keep your customers happy is to be sending them lots of emails. There's no such thing as too much uh, notification emails when it comes to uh, the availability of your
1: service. That's fair. It seems weird, but you know, <laughs> do it. Like most people hate getting spam. Well, how many how many do you get from Azure? I get like at least 10 a day of like blank blank West two instance went down, uh, for our mitigation in progress. And I'm, it's helpful, I guess for me, it's just another, you know, as I like to call it, control A, control Q to read all, and control D to delete them immediately. Uh, but for people who are really need to keep track of that, right. I'm sure it's really helpful.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's nice. To know. Actually, it's mostly nice, though, because when, you're, when your customers, your end-user customers, come to you and say, why can't I get to X? And your first thought is, what have I done wrong, and my stuff's not working? And you find out, oh, it's your, it's your upstream provider that's, that's down, and hey, then you can say, it's not us, we're doing a good job. It's the people we chose to run our backends, which are not. <laughs> so that, that also reflects poorly on you, but what can I say? So, yeah, I think that, that kind of covers... Um, I mean, we can want to really go into... If, if There's so many different means of handling storage. Like yeah. like Brandon was saying, we use iSCSI, which is a you know it's using TCP IP as the, as the actual network protocol. It's all network connections back to our devices via network switches, and that's a really easy way to ship data back and forth. You can do all the neat things you want to do a network by segment or have physical separation if you want for for reliability. Again, full redundancy for your network backplane, right? Make sure that you've oh, got yeah. all the connectivity. Um but if you are planning using VMware or ESXi, you might be using vSAN where in that case your storage is actually in your nodes. Yeah. That's... And they are replicating the data across a again, the network between them. And that way you can have like the storage is there. So when you shut down or do maintenance and you migrate your VMs, well, you don't lose your connection to the data because it's all in the same host. But So there's you know, other parts of it. Then there's Fibre Channel, which I don't understand why people would still be using it in 2023. If you don't know what Fibre Channel is, good yeah. for you, don't look at it, up, don't bother. <laughs> That's all I'm going to say.
1: That's fair enough. Uh, I don't... Fibre Channel has its, its place, I think. Uh, it allows you as... like, I, I think it's more of also a division between teams. Sometimes your network team... Is completely divided from, like, say, a compute storage team, Mm -hmm. Um, and Fiber Channel allows them to run everything asynchronously. It also is really nice because it pushes the storage directly to the host. There's no, you know, going to subscribe, seeing if it's going to discover, and all that. Right. Um, But at the end of the day, it does get you the same results, and the overhead is negligible. Mm -hmm. They are pretty equal in terms of performance because if you got NVMe, boy, is it going fast, no matter what. Yeah, right.
0: Yeah, and especially with DMA access over networks now, that's
1: yeah, mind-blowingly it's, fast.
0: It's as fast as you can get. Um, so what it, is DMA over access? X- just for all the people who want to know. Um, the next generation of, of storage connectivity is to actually make direct memory access calls, basically where you are from one point to another. Uh, I'm, I'm being intentionally vague here because it's not worth really going into deep details, but imagine you have a storage system that supports dma access to storage and you have your 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 client or your server whatever it's going to be that's going to be accessing that memory or that excuse me that storage they would make direct memory calls where they're essentially passing through the hardware directly to the mem to the wow. device itself and accessing it and pulling out versus going through the multiple layers of oh, okay. of the host's control over the storage you know packaging that up putting it on a wire sending it across in um it's when we get to that point where that's that's normal you will be able to fully saturate, You'll, uh, essentially, assuming you had a network that was fast enough, yeah. you could access NVMe storage at the speed of the disk.
1: I wait, for, uh, what is it, Cat
0: 8, I think, is 800 gig? Yeah. <laughs> um, and that would just be bananas to get to that point. But, yeah. but, and you're seeing that more in data centers now where they're having, like, 100 gig connections. So they need to get to that data fast, and that's how they do it. So That's awesome. But, all right, so, talked about storage. All right. What's next on the... You like, want to talk compute or you want to talk backup? I think we should talk about compute first, even okay. though I had backups listed. I think The
1: notes don't have to be in order. Yeah, yeah. So, all right, I'll, I'll let you lead on the compute. Yeah, so when we talk about compute, probably in your home lab, maybe you have two or three NUCs. That, that's a really good alternative. Um, or maybe you're like me and you just run one ESXi host with a bunch of different VMs on it. Um, but that in there has a flaw. Every time I have to patch ESXi, mm-hmm. it's shutting everything down, right. patching ESXi, bringing everything back up. So the theme of today is redundancy, redundancy as it always has <laughs> been this entire time. Um, yeah. But there's a couple of different ways you can do this in terms of compute redundancy. You need to have something that has multiple nodes, but you can choose to either do this as what Rich and I like to do, which is pizza boxes. Mm-hmm. Um, they now have pizza boxes with nodes in them which blew my mind when I first discovered More inception. Those. Yeah. What if it um, went deeper? Or you can do what is a blade and chassis configuration. Right. Uh, if you think blade and chassis, those are the ones where like you can pull a lever and the whole thing slides out and mm-hmm. they're super fun uh, but they're kind of a, a different way to think about it because everything in, in terms of that is software defined. Right. You're if you're running a fiber channel, your WWPNs are defined, your iSCSIs are, are all virtual, mm-hmm. all your networks virtual, and it's just passing it through like a big 100 gig either backplane or actual direct ports now that i the chassis. Um, but you're a big fan of HeatSpox. you have the, what's the SuperMicro what you have? I can't remember the
0: model of that. Tell me. But it's it's a, it's an E5 2680 B4 generation. Um, so it's a 10.
1: Um, it's a 10. Okay. So it it's a, it's a dual node, right? It's a that, dual it node. It has GPU support support it's
0: yeah it's, it's got inside of it a couple of uh, uh 16x pc slots but you'd be hard pressed to put a, a, a an actual chonker GPU yeah. into it but it, in theory you could put one into it if you if you if you really wanted <laughs> yeah. to. But it's designed mostly for computing it's broken basically as a split or if you imagine the box it's a 2u server right 2u chassis and it's more like broken to the thirds where one third of the back is the node that slides in. Then there'll be a third that's the two redundant power supplies, and then another third which is the other node. And it's an it's an A B node thing. They're, and the node density, you know, I know some
1: micros making two, four, eights. And eights, eight, eights are like the full. I think they're. I want to say six U or eight U. They're they're yeah. massive ones. You pull at the front. Yeah, um, big chunkers. Just if you if you look at these uh, multi nodes, especially the eight and the fours, um, put them in a colo. They will scream in yeah. your garage. Super loud. Uh, as they try to push all the air through as, you know, none none of the heat sinks are actively cooled. So they are That's immediately fact. pulling as much air as possible to keep these things cool. I'm a big fan of the four node systems. I wanna I wanna get my hands on I'll probably Everybody, my next upgrade. Yeah. Everybody wants a four node. Um, but it, lets, it you lets you do vSAN. it lets know, you do steps. it I'm lets you like time.
0: I think it's <laughs> awesome too I...
1: it's like uh. the the greatest thing and and the fact that a lot of the four nodes now are also under or 1200 watt power supplies mm-hmm. which is like a crazy thing to think of four computers with four pro- processors especially the one we had our conversation what like Two two months ago, about how processors are just taking off yeah, power exactly. consumption, yeah and it's nice to see that there's stuff on the other end that is reducing power mm-hmm. consumption um, but either way, if you want to establish h a you've got to have three nodes right
0: yeah, yeah, for sure you need you need to be able to to again redundancy you, and be able to move your workloads between them not just have three independent nodes but a way of of, of moving your workloads between them, looking the at cluster. you Proxmox. yeah, looking exactly. <laughs> at like um and it doesn't have to be like I'm. I'm a big fan of virtualization. I might be considered a dinosaur by by some watching because I will I will go to virtualization first before I go to containers. I do fully support containers. Containers are better. Um, I know he's he's <laughs> he, he's all about containers, and that's fine. Um, but whether you're doing Kubernetes or you're doing uh, what's the Docker compare for Kubernetes swarm swarm uh. or you're doing virtualization either via um, VMware's ESXi and vCenter or proxmox and manually moving yourself across or um xcpng the ability to be able to live migrate or move those workloads whether they're containers being moved to one side or another for to be able to take down nodes all that stuff is is crucial it's critical yeah uh, and they do it when this stuff i love the fact that it's it's not considered pa- passe and just like uh, boring but i remember when i was getting exposed to to vmware back in the day and i remember Taking the, the, my training and whatnot and watching them do migrations from one host to another and being like... I s- start a ping on a machine that I was migrating and losing sometimes one ping, yeah, sometimes
1: I, no pings. The one they showed me was just one. Yeah. And that was like the super cool thing. It was automatic too. It just decided, it was like, oh no, this host is too much in use and just sent it. It's just... It's
0: there's something uh, something magical magical about the abstraction of that sort of stuff where a virtual machine running inside it or a container running in something doesn't is not aware of the fact that it's it's disembodied and it just got moved somewhere else and now it's in a it's a brain in a different body and, and it's none the wiser. So that sort of redundancy or excuse me that that, that um the ability to, to basically Move those workloads so you are not impacted by having to do maintenance on a piece of hardware or the underlying OS is
1: critical. Yeah. Uh, Rich was a victim of someone who uh, the uh, the company wouldn't give the right licensing, wouldn't pay for the right licensing to move it. So Rich got the task of uh, oh, shutting down the VMs manually and then... Uh, unregistering them from one host, and then picking them up on the other host and registering them. Gosh, so Rich was a personal DRS, oh uh, man, which is, that, that's that's VMware's distributed resource scheduler. So Rich got to decide, he'd be like, mm, this one has a 60% RAM and 30% CPU, and would kick VMs there automatically uh, when people complained. <laughs>
0: that, those are the days, hey, look, Side note: If you're gonna if you're gonna invest in these sort of systems, um, money is it, money sucks when you have to buy these things, but it's worth it. Yeah, because the alternative is yeah, you can shut down a machine and you can remove it from one VM and you can add or one host to add to the other one, but that sucks. It's like a like a 15 minute process. It was all manual. It's just terrible.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think that's the other thing you want to add in here is like going going production has cost to it.
0: Yes, significant. If it's,
1: cost. If it's not a direct, you know, operations cost, it'll be your time. It'll be your engineering work. It'll be, you know, something will have to to account for going to this level of redundancy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So
0: to put a pin in the whole um, like actual compute side of things, whether whatever platform you choose here, whether it's you're going to go full, um, you know, automation with containers or virtualization, whatever your, uh, your requirements are for your for the type of production you're doing. Just make sure that you have the ability to migrate between two locations, at least. The best case scenario is always to have three of everything. Redundancy doesn't, I mean, when I think redundancy, I think, oh, two of something, but no. In most cases, it's usually, uh, especially for a lot of systems, it's three. You have three or more.
1: Yeah, (laughs) Preferably like four or five. Spread those
0: workloads and never, um, if that's the case, uh, especially when you're talking about virtualization, make sure that the host that you're building out, if you're only going to buy two and you're only going to have redundancy between two hosts you make darn sure that both nodes can hold all of each other's workloads yeah. that's where the three hosts come in because you have three of the same and if you lose a host you can spread it across the other two but that's fine but if you have two hosts and you have really heavy workloads where they're both basically fully utilized you're going to have a bad time cuz not only are you going to lose a host and everything's going to migrate over but then
1: all of your workloads are going to run like garbage gonna, yeah. everything's going to be in contention at once right yeah you'll, uh, you'll be for all of that Man, times. i don't want to do math about this yeah, i don't want to figure it's, out it's n 1 redundancy it's no fun yeah it's it's bad stuff so moving on let's talk about then let's talk about backups right backups are the the, the, the most important thing in the room like at every company i've been at it's all been about the backups we we you know production workloads they're important, but backups, sure. man. We want to make sure the backups are there. We're covering. So, the, yeah. since you do most of the backup stuff, what we want to kick it off?
0: Yeah, I think that I, I. When it comes to backing up, it's going to be a logical decision based on the amount of risk, the amount of things you're trying to, um, trying to account for. Whether you're worried about ransomware or you're worried about just hardware failure of storage or something like that, where you need to be able to restore. And it's going to depend on the type of workloads you're running, specifically um, in some organizations where you are, let's say you're you're hosting client data. Client, you might have a, an agreement to be able to restore individual files hmm. for users, right? Yeah, yeah. That might be a thing. Like uh, Someone listening to this who doesn't want to start their own production system but is working in an enterprise, most of the workloads that, that your backup restores are going to be is to restore files when, when the CEO decides he didn't need that file and, oh, he actually does. But... You know, being able to restore a workload that you know, was lost because of whatever—maybe there's a patching update or something like that—and you have to roll back, and you don't have a snapshot because that's snapshots are not backups. But no RAID, you know, come on, yeah,
1: yeah. Raid, Raid, <laughs> is that, RAID is not a backup. That is, that's a specific
0: call out for uh, a friend in our Discord who uh, who likes to remind us all of the time that RAID is not backups, and he is right. Um, yeah. But. Backups can be as, depending on what your acceptable amount of risk is, could be something as simple as being able to restore and store that data locally just as a local backup system, like an independent piece of storage that is using um, you could, you know, whatever your backup software system is, right? Whether it's a Synology NAS, which is acceptable in my opinion, even for an enterprise, or it's running Veeam and some sort of like really more uh, geared towards that sort of stuff. You need to have a on-premise piece of gear that's capable of backing up and
1: then multiple revisions depending on how far you want to provide as a restore point like or how long you need to provide right because yeah. depending if what you're doing and who who you're hosting if you will mm-hmm. uh you may have requirements that say things last for seven or ten years
0: right and that, that uh, situation that's when you're talking about like financial stuff and tax information that you need to back up that takes special yeah. consideration um, but the gold standard for backups is to have your on you know your on premise your direct backups and then another backup infrastructure that is available to move those off of so to dump them to cloud storage as a as a secondary backup which which gives you redundancy in case the building falls down and everything burns to the ground, including your backup storage now you have it someplace
1: safe that you could restore elsewhere you you might lose in two arms and two legs restoring it with how much it'll cost but- sure. It's not gone forever. But if you have agreements, yeah. I mean, if you <laughs> yeah. have agreements with
0: your customers, being sued or losing data is way worse than what it would cost to, to yeah. ingress that data back from Azure Blob or AWS or whatever. Um, and then the third thing, which is really starting to show up a lot, especially in cybersecurity stuff, is immutable backups, which are interesting. And immutable backup is basically a copy of your current backups that is undeletable. Yeah. It ages out after a certain point, but it's, it is undeletable. So imagine having a, a storage system and how expensive that is just to keep that. And then imagine buying another one just so you can keep a copy of a copy.
1: Yeah. And I mean, is it is it undeletable by anyone or undeletable by like... Undeletable like, by any- I assume you have an age-off process, though. Those systems typically have an automated
0: age-off process okay. being set so that, cool. they, that, they, that they last for a certain period of time. But the idea behind immutability is especially important when it comes to a lot of people who have backup infrastructures, and I'll paint a picture for you, who are using Veeam, for example. Veeam is a Windows product. A lot of people mm-hmm. don't really re- realize, but Veeam runs on Windows Server. You have to have Windows Server to run Veeam, right? Veeam. And uh, you, can, you can store to Linux VMs, you can backup and restore anything you want, um, but Veeam runs on Windows. Mm-hmm. And they have things called proxies, and the proxies are things that actually uh, make your data connections through your storage connections. Those are also Windows, so you it's not a it's not a far flung th- idea to think that if ransomware or something bad got into your organization and they were attacking your Windows infrastructure, they could attack the same storage volumes that your backups are stored on, and therefore now your backups are encrypted, and you've got no backups. Yeah. Right. So that's and so immutability is basically a and you can do this through a third party software. There's lots of hardware. There's lots of third party hardware is out there that 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 function immutably um specifically as as a as a product or Veeam now actually has immutability built into i think version 12 and beyond um but nonetheless the whole idea there is that uh, you make a backup of of Brandon's excel document and then there's an additional copy that's put in a place that uh when the backup is done it drops connection yeah that's over. that's that's how you don't that's how there's no way you can get that ransomware is when the backup's done the connection is is severed and that is just now an island <laughs> so that's that's that's, those are the,
1: the ways to do it. And that's becoming like the norm. I mean, I, there's a, they call them uh, worm backups, which means uh, write once, read many. Yep. Um, and the idea is that you can read off of that all day, mm-hmm. but you're not changing it. It's, it is what it is. Yeah. Um, but such is the ever-growing cybersecurity landscape.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Man, it, it reminds me, like the term worm, when I was a kid, I worked at a bank. And the bank had these—they wor- called them worm drives. And mm-hmm. I was a kid. I was like, "What's a worm drive?" And they pull out this laser disc-sized. <laughs> it was so laser discs are like giant uh, DVDs for yeah. those. I mean, they're, they were thick too. They're like a quarter inch thick, something like that. And they—you could write to them. Mm-hmm. These 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 discs, and they were in caddies. So they weren't like you took a record, like a an LP-sized thing, and set it into a giant CD-ROM tray. Like you had this giant tray that you fed into this giant drive, and it. Wrote to those in the same way, similar to how like DVD and CDRs worked. out mm-hmm. and when it was done, it was locked forever. The instant that that little bubble was formed in that plastic, it could never. It was like a CDR. It's just like a giant cd little yeah. were worm drives, and that's, that's nuts. It was as I always wanted one because it, like it was bigger than my head, but, yeah. but didn't get one because they were expensive. As you can imagine, Which I don't I bet. All right, All right so Sweet. we talked about backup, computer infrastructure. Um, do we, do we we kind of touched on workloads, but do you yeah. want to talk specifically?
1: I think there's just a little bit to understand about, I guess this more gets into the, uh, the DR side of it and some other stuff. Mm-hmm. And we did an episode on DR. Go roll back in the feed and, and check that out yeah, if you sure. want more off of it. But having an understanding of what is actually running on your workloads and what your customers are running can help you back them up. When you talk about tools like Veeam, Veeam is very much, I would say, like, a broad stroke to back everything up. Mm-hmm. If you got a virtual infrastructure, it's great. You tag it in, in VMware, and VMware, it backs it up from the vSphere. It's very simple. Right. Um, those things get com- more complicated when you talk about Kubernetes, when you talk about Docker, when you talk about SQL mm-hmm. or Oracle Database stuff like that. You actually have to have I think Veeam has a client that you install and it'll go and grab what they call T logs, which are the transaction
0: yeah, logs. Yeah, it does actually they call it application aware um, processing, right? And so it does that sort
1: Yeah. But having that type of stuff makes the difference between only having to restore a transaction log, which is like five minutes, mm-hmm. versus a full VM VM restore, which could be Correct. If if you're rich and, and wealthy thirty minutes, if you're not Days. It yeah. uh, depends on where you're pulling. It do, you, from. do you have solid state um,
0: storage for your backups? Do you have mechanical
1: disks, right? Yeah, and so un- understanding that a lot of those things that you want to not only make. Not only understand your backup infrastructure as well, but also understand what high availability looks for those applications. So, like, maybe you can't run all your your containers on one Docker host. Not that I would do that. That'd be weird. (laughs) Uh, But maybe you want to have something like Kubernetes that has, you know, has a minimum of three, if not six or nine actual worker nodes deploying those applications. Understanding that if you're running containers, are those containers replicated? Mm -hmm. All of this extra thought as you can see why one person usually doesn't run an entire data center uh, <laughs> right yeah. re- and then on top of it redundancy has been our theme redundancy in people find someone you can work with because you definitely are not going to want to be the only person running around trying to run your your data center colo yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> i guess all of that comes full circle, circle of how you open which is like don't do this yeah <laughs> like, you can just you can for for a dirt cheap price you could probably just rent space with a, a an msp or, somewhere not msp but like a, a put t- it
1: on the, Azure. yes put it on aws Some, yeah exactly. i like i think it's fun to think about i think it's fun to implement certain uh bits and pieces of it mm-hmm. but to go full is just crazy especially with the Having you know actually serving it to customers, but I think we at least have one person on the Discord who does that. We yeah, I don't know if, if I, I ever. Yeah, I don't correctly. think he's,
0: he's still around these days. But we had a we had a dude who was just he like I remember him sending uh, pictures, and he had like in his in his home in his basement. Yeah. He was somewhere in Europe, just had racks and racks of gear. Of uh, and he was serving to like he wasn't like it wasn't nefarious or like some sort. of He was he was selling the service to businesses. And he ran the most impressive infrastructure, right? And he was just a guy. Yeah, he was just a and dude. A dude. <laughs> and he was like, I did this thing. This is, and it was for him. It was like, I think, I think he mentioned it was just like it was just a side hobby, side business, that yeah. got out of control. Yeah. And here it is. Now he's got like multiple nodes and multiple clusters and multiple ISPs and backups, targets and everything. He was, it was, it was impressive. Absolutely impressive. But uh, I think he's a little crazy. Yeah,
1: and that's a also a good thing to add understanding your workloads is also trying to understand your customers. Mm-hmm. Your customers may not be the, running the most legal workloads and you will have to comply with, if you're here in the US, Uncle Sam, mm-hmm. if you're uh, in Great Britain or in Europe, the EU might come knocking for uh yeah. Inter- torrenting. Interpol comes yeah. to your door and says, can you please give us the ownership? Yeah, There's a whole bunch of that stuff. That's a good point. It's just a good thing to understand, it, especially when you're hosting because like, you need to have the framework written down somewhere. Right. To, to not make yourself liable if the next Del Chapo decides to run Bitcoin miners <laughs> off of your... Uh, Monero miners. Yeah, right, Monero's yeah. out of your garage. So right. just throw, throwing that out there. but Yeah.
0: I think we're lucky in the United States, um, you are indemnified from what, what your customers do, but you're also absolutely required to submit to any sort of um, legal... Paperwork. Uh, yeah.
1: If they, like if they, if they the show the FBI, up, ask you yeah. give. If There's they not... <laughs> show you
0: papers. You're going to open that door, and that's the way it's going to be. And, and and that's. I mean, that's. You you kind of have that risk. I think most of the time, if you're if you're in the clear and you're doing things publicly, you don't have to worry about that necessarily. If yeah. you are thinking about doing a bunch of nefarious stuff uh, via tour, I'm just going to tell you right now that uh you're crazy and you're going to have a bad time. um So I wouldn't do that. Um, Take that as my advice. Yeah, <laughs> stay stay above board
1: because it's better than going to prison. Prison's not fun, I don't think. Uh,
0: <clears throat> but I think that's
1: about it. What yeah, you think? I think I think we covered it. Got a got a little off topic there. Hopefully didn't didn't uh, lose anyone. But um, yeah. uh I'm sure they I'm sure they loved it. So okay, so
0: Brandon always tells me that I need to talk about swag, and I'm going to show right, you the I'm new wearing, stuff. I'm wearing. Oh, it's hard. The microphone. Just go. Boop, move the microphone out of the way. <laughs> This is the, one of our new designs. I love it. I'm actually super proud of it. It is available now in our swag store. Go check it out. Um, help support us. If you are watching this on YouTube, thank you for watching on YouTube. Consider becoming a member because those memberships kick us back just a little bit of money and uh, help us uh, keep doing what we're doing. And that's we appreciate every one of you for doing it. And I guess, Brandon, we will see you again. What?
1: Two or three weeks. Two we, couple we, weeks, yeah. yeah. I yeah. think we're gonna we're gonna try a little little uh, poke at a uh, cybersecurity stuff next time oh, around. So. so buckle up for that one, I guess. But all right. Everybody,
0: thanks for listening or watching, and we will catch you next month.